today with Dr. K. I'm Dr. K. Wise Whitehead, here again to have another conversation with you about some of the stories that matter. Folks, yesterday, uh, former Secretary of State, four-star General Colin Powell, was announced that he had died from complications from COVID-19, 84 years old. He's a prostate cancer survivor. He was struggling with blood cancer as well as with Parkinson's. He had an incredible impact on how our country is shaped, what happens both internationally and domestically when it comes to policy. I want to talk today in this first hour to people who actually knew him, who worked with him, who can give us a sense of who he was as a man, because for a lot of people, Colin Powell is complicated. We're going to pull some of that down today. And then in the second hour, we're going to open up the phone lines and talk to you about the fact that President Joe Biden is coming to Baltimore tomorrow. He's doing a town hall. What should we ask him? We'll talk about that in the second hour. But up first, I have Lieutenant Governor Boyd Rutherford. How are you, Lieutenant Governor? I am well. Thank you. I'm happy to invite you back to the show. Just to hear from you about uh, former Secretary of State Colin Powell, who he was as a man, and what you think he gave to America. Well, you know, he, of course, was a a patriot, um, a a man who served his country for many years in uniform, in combat, in Vietnam, you know, there to, you know, serve his country. Uh, went on, of course, and became national security advisor to President Reagan, was chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for both Presidents George W. Bush and President Clinton, and then later Secretary of State uh, for my former boss and his boss, George W. Bush. You know, and all of these were first, you know, first, not necessarily the uh, his, his service in Vietnam, but in these appointed positions and confirmed positions, were first for an African American, uh, and led the way to the second African American, first African American female to be Secretary of State, and that's Condoleezza Rice. You know, so he he had a major impact on foreign policy. You know, in you know decades before now, and a lasting memory with regard to. You know, a man of honor, a man of courage, and someone who really loved this country and loved serving the people of the country. Let me ask you, because there was something that um, Colin Powell said near the end of his life, and I wanted to have you comment on it as a member of the Republican Party, where he said that uh, two things. One, he said he wanted to take the Republican Party back to being the party of Lincoln. What exactly does that mean, uh, in your opinion? Well, I think it's it's more in line with what our administration has been doing the last seven years. And I think that's, you know, the case. Uh, I think in the, you know, the couple of years that uh, President Trump was there, he took it in a different direction, and we're all working to bring it back. And then my last question to you um, was another comment that he made. Just, you know, as you're reflecting on his life and his legacy, he said he got to a point that he was no longer a Republican, no longer a Democrat. He's a someone who's voted Republican and Democrat. Instead, that he considered himself to be more than that, that it was more about America and watching what was happening in America rather than focusing on different parties. What do you think about that as someone who serves as a Republican, Maryland's lieutenant governor? What do you think about that idea that maybe it's above and beyond parties and there's something different that we should be focused on? Well, I think that's always an individual decision, mm-hmm. and they should be able, individuals should vote and support the person that they feel is best for the job, and it doesn't necessarily matter to party. Uh, this is a state where the overwhelming majority of people in this state have registered and often vote for the Democratic Party candidate, even if they don't know what that candidate is standing for, or they don't look at that candidate's record. Uh, what they have done over the several years, if you look at leadership in some of the places around the state where essentially the leadership has failed year after year and still voting the same people in year after year, you know, you're just you're making the same mistakes. You're basically telling people that the way we live now is okay. So 
Yeah, I think it's an individual's decision, and you know, he's saying he's voting for and supporting the individual, and not necessarily the party. And that's what we often say ourselves. Thank you so much, Maryland's Lieutenant Governor Boyd Rutherford. Thank you for reflecting on Colin Powell's life and legacy. We appreciate you, sir. Thank you. Bye. I'm joined now by Brigadier General Janine Burkhead from the Maryland National Guard uh, to talk about how Colin Powell paved the way for African-Americans, for women, uh, for people of all different races and ethnicities in the armed services. Brigadier General, how are you? I'm well. How are you today? I am well, and I'm happy to have you on the show. One of the things that, that I know in terms of reading about you is that you believe that you succeed by having a plan and having a plan to change the plan. Yes. Which to me yes. really sums up the life and legacy of Colin Powell. There's a plan. you got to have a plan to change the plan. Yes. Can you talk about what that means and how his life and his work have influenced you? Yes, yes. So thank you for having me and giving me this opportunity to talk about a wonderful man, leader, and certainly an example for anyone to follow. And throughout his life, you can see where he was intentional about what he was going to do and how he was going to pursue a career. He may not have realized that it would um, take him to uh, to uh, be a, a general officer in the end or to, be, um, the, to lead the State Department, but he knew that he was a leader and destined for great things, I believe. Hence, he pursued his education and then went on, you know, ROTC for sure, and then went on to uh, successive positions would allow, that allowed him to uh, develop and become a leader. And then what he did was always to pay it back and to be that mentor to, to people. And one of the things I think you can find in his writings uh, is where he shared that message, and he was intentional about writing it down. And so one of the books that I have, and it's called It Worked For Me in Life and Leadership, and this book is actually autographed. It said It Worked For Me, and then it to Janine from Colin Powell. Mm-hmm. And this is this book, I'm sitting here with it. I brought it today for this interview, and I have it tagged. And so some of the things that you will find um, that I use all the time are that Check the small things on page 18. Never walk past the mistake. There's a whole chapter 13 on that. And then this, this chapter on what I tell my aides. And as a general officer in command, at, at any level, you get an aide. And there are just these refining moments that he's providing to, again, that mentorship and leadership to an aide and an organization. He took the time to write this down and be specific about what an age should look at to, to be successful. And I think that that is just um, the epitome of a leader to take the time and write down his thoughts and provide that example to an aide. He took the time to care about that. So I, I, um, I cherish this book. I turned to it last week when my daughter asked me for a thought about America and the United States, and she was preparing a small speech. And I turned to this book, and I gave her a quote out of this book for her mm. um, for her to use. So uh, Colin Powell is somebody we talk about in my household, and we all felt a sense of loss um, when we learned of his passing. Can you speak, Brigadier General, a little bit about his time in the armed services? For a lot of people who are on the outside, they don't understand what it means to have the type of commitment that he had to go as far as he did, to rise as high as he did as a black man in the armed services, I don't think people fully recognize how challenging, how difficult, how hard it must have been for him to endure and keep going. Right. Right. Uh, And to think of in the 70s, he's he's going through um, uh, the ROTC and the and working as a uh, in the ROTC program, which I was in, I was in ROTC at Hampton University, and he's so he's in ROTC preparing to be an officer and what that means. And then, uh, of course, in your ROTC, you're pursuing your degree at the same time you're learning how to be an officer. And then he goes to Vietnam, and at that that time in the '60s, going to Vietnam and and uh, being this uh, a black officer, I'm sure uh, that was uh, a seminal moment in his career 
having to to lead soldiers in war and, and to and to be wounded and then to come back to your country and at that time as we know um we certainly weren't um very uh um good to those coming back uh from that time but then he still persisted to stay in the military and do it, it's hard to believe i will tell you that it, between my time coming out and finishing my ROTC program and then hearing about Colin Powell and the 30-plus years uh, that, that would have been between my time and, and him finishing his time, it doesn't seem so. It seems like he was that person in the ear of a soldier, in the ear of a, a young woman like myself or a person going through ROTC thinking, I can do this. I know Colin Powell has. And I would tell you it was hard to believe that, that he, he was out um, – out of the service and retired in 93, and, and my commission was in 91, mm. I would tell you, I would think that I, he was serving right there beside me because of all the stories and the things that, that we'd, we read about him and knew about him and his career. And then um, as a, a general officer, I got to, to meet and ask him some questions at a program in Syracuse a few years ago. And again, he was that, that person who sat down and took the time to answer my questions about leadership and, and to reflect on uh, his time as, um, as secretary and, and how he used those skills uh, that he learned as uh, an officer in the military to certainly take those skills and to become that um, person who was able to lead anybody and to have a successful career. So I, I, I think of him fondly and reflecting on my time and as a, certainly as a, as a black female and as a minority going through ROTC, any time that the going got tough, you, know, you could think of a Colin Powell who, who probably really had it tough making it through. Um, and, uh, and, and so that, that's certainly something to think about and, and make you know that you can be successful if you just stick it out. I really appreciate you just saying mm-hmm. that. To begin with, you have to have a plan and have a plan to change the plan. And to end with, you know, you can be successful. You have to stick it out because I think that that, along with the fact that life is complicated and sometimes you make choices in a moment that you may regret later. And I I think one of the amazing things about Colin Powell is that he always was clear about when mistakes were made. Yes. And then to try to fix it so that you didn't do it again. Yes. But isn't that, again, that's just, how he he's an example, and, and that's where the learning is. When you make a mistake and you can admit the mistake and recover from it, and that's where the learning is, and we can take example of that from him. And so I think that's, that's important. He's, whether he wrote it down in a book or whether he was actually living the example, we can all learn from him, and certainly I, I take away a lot from him as an example in, in my career, and, and hopefully that others will too. Thank you so much, Brigadier General Janine Burkhead. Thank you for your time Mm -hmm. and for your service to our country. You're welcome. Thank you for having me today and reflecting on uh, this wonderful man. Thank you very much. And, folks, we're joined now by retired Colonel Edna Cummings from the United States Army. Uh, She served as the Army Reserve Ambassador for Maryland. She's a six triple A Congressional Gold Medal Champion, and she's a documentary producer. Colonel Cummings, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, pleasure to be with you to, this afternoon. I would like you to begin by just kind of picking up on what the, the Brigadier General spoke about in terms of the impact of Colin Powell. Can you specifically talk about what his path meant for women? Well, I have a very personal connection with General Powell's legacy. Um, I've met him several times throughout my military career. But there are two events honoring African-American military personnel that stand out. And the second one that I'll share with you is still uh, rippling. The effects of it still rippling. Um, the first time was in 1990, about three decades ago. I was a captain in the Army, and he was just appointed as the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff. That's the four-star general premier assignment. And I was seated at a table with him at a scholarship fundraising awards event hosted by The Rocks, and that's a professional development organization uh, for military and senior civilians. You know, he spoke with his family. We took pictures. He signed autographs. So the typical things you do at an event like that. But I was at his table. But the second time 
was about three years ago at a 2018 award ceremony hosted by the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. And they honored black veterans and members of the Congressional Black Caucus who were veterans. And General Powell was receiving an award along with a member of a World War II unit, the 6888th Central Postal Directory Battalion, or the 6888. And I had nominated a member of the unit, Ms. Millie Dunvisi, for the award. At the time, she was 100 years old. And I was in the early stages of fundraising for the monument at Leavenworth. He says, hey, don't ask me for any money. <laughs> so it was a light exchange. But I told him about how I was bringing recognition to this unit of black women that was the only unit to serve overseas during World War II. And what they did, they cleared millions of pieces of mail in record time and restored troop morale. But what's so unique about that conversation Many years ago, General Powell had mentioned while he was at Leavenworth, Kansas, in the, 90, in the 80s, I'm sorry, he never saw any statues or memorials honoring the legacy of Buffalo soldiers. Now, don't, many people in your audience may know the history of the Buffalo soldiers, but it was the first right. black unit after the Civil War. And so there was a unit assigned to Leavenworth, Kansas, the 10th Cavalry, and he initiated this effort for a Buffalo Soldier Monument uh, that was dedicated at Leavenworth in 1992. Now, that one monument is the flagship monument in that Buffalo Soldier Park at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And it has a bust of the first black four-star general, and General Powell's bust is there as well. But what's so interesting, when I met him again in 2018, I was working to raise funds for a monument to be placed in that park. And now the 6888 monument is there, and that led to me spearheading the effort with Congress to award this unit the highest uh, civilian award in the nation, the Congressional Gold Medal. So to me, uh, General Powell's legacy, just that one thought he had to erect a statue honoring black soldiers has led to someone like me, um, initiating an effort with Congress to bestow the nation's highest award on this unit of black women that uh, we thought the nation had forgotten about. So in a nutshell, you know, it's very personal uh, for me, like I said, uh, his leadership. I don't think he will ever understand, you know, his actions and how his leadership impacted uh, millions around the world. Now, I know it's really challenging, uh, Colonel Cummings. It's right now, there are a lot of people who are not interested in joining the armed services. And we understand, um, and we thank you, of course, for, for your ministry and your service to this country, but we understand that it's people like you and it's people like Colin Powell who, who stand on the wall protecting our freedom, those ones that we may take very casually, we may not think about till it's time for us to stand in our power with the First Amendment, but it's people like you who are on the front line. What do you think we can do to encourage more young people to make a conscious choice to say it's about a greater sacrifice than just me at this moment? Right. Well, it's um, a challenge, you're right, but what's interesting in my position as the Army Reserve Ambassador I'm able to nominate students for scholarships. Uh, this past year, I was able to facilitate, you know, scholarships for three um, high school students to join the, uh, to go to college and join an Army ROTC program and serve in the Army Reserve. And so I think if we just communicate, first of all, as you very well said, is not about you, it's about a greater purpose and making your mark, you know, in the nation because, as a veteran, I personally know that the abilities and skills and opportunities that I have, a lot of it came from the military just shaping me and uh, showing me what was possible when I didn't think it was possible. And there are few um, industries or organizations that really give you that opportunity to excel if you're willing to do the work. Do you 
believe that the armed services is as important today? And I know this is kind of a loaded question, right? Coming out of thinking about the 6,888 black women who went over during World War II. I'm thinking about my father, who is a Vietnam War-era veteran. My my father-in-law, who served in the Marines during Vietnam, and actually went over to Vietnam. And I have a whole family of military officers. So I'm wondering, because I know it's a pointed question, is the military as important, as needed and necessary today as it's always been? Yeah. Well, I think so. And granted, the military service isn't for everyone. Uh, most people do not serve. So I just hope you listeners think if you don't serve, you're doing something wrong. But right. it's just about service in general, whether it's in the military, in a community, just be part of something that's meaningful and that's larger than you. And the military is one aspect of that public service. I know in high schools with my children, they had to do community service, and that was very small, but still it was something to say, do not take what you have for granted. And for your listeners who are veterans who have traveled around the world, I believe that we can all agree that once you leave the United States and you see the conditions in other countries, and there's no such thing as perfect, however... By living in the United States and seeing um, what opportunities we have here, you understand why so many people want to come, but we cannot take it for granted. And that's part of the larger aspect of being, you know, participating in something larger than yourself so it can give you meaning and not to take what we have uh, for granted. And then my last question for you. Colonel Cummings, as we're reflecting on the impact and the life and the legacy of Colin Powell, there was a time in this country when we had the mandatory draft, when young young men were taking off, you know, you hit 18, depending upon whether or not you were in college or you were able to get a medical waiver, but you were, you were sent off to war. We don't have the mandatory draft. Where do you stand on that? I know you are ambassador going out. Do you think that's something we should look to reinstate? Should everybody, I'm not just talking about young men, I'm talking about young men and young women, of course, but should everyone have an opportunity to serve this country, whether it's through AmeriCorps, Peace Corps, the armed services, that there's some type of mandatory service that's required of everyone? Well, you know, it's interesting. That's a very interesting question because when my kids were in high school, they had to complete, you know, community service. And so it, it was mandatory, or they didn't do, they couldn't get the credit. So that's a small scale, and it would be great to see, you know, that expanded. But again, the military service um, isn't for everyone, and, and I believe that a lot of the passion that we see, regardless on what side of the, you know, aisle that people are on, a lot of that passion comes from the desire to preserve, you know, what we know and what makes us comfortable. So that service, you know, that that's hard, and it's just something that, you know, hopefully that people want to do on a volunteer basis. And you see a lot of people volunteering. It's, it's not necessarily with something that's mandated, but I believe if we step back, we will just see so many um you know, areas, I mean, by you having a show like this, you're volunteering, you're helping us get the word out about, you know, General Powell, his legacy and the impact, and people who, you know, whether it's the media or just in everyday life, there are people out there, you know, contributing, you know, to the country in ways that may not be recognized, but it's still a contribution. Thank you so much. Retired Colonel Edna Cummings from the United States Army, Army Reserve Ambassador for Maryland, 6888 Congressional Gold Medal Champion and Documentary Producer. Thank you for your service, Colonel Cummings. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thank you. So, folks, we're going to leave it here for just a moment. When we come back, you cannot turn that down because we're going to speak to the Emeritus Founding Dean, that's uh, Dean Dwayne Wickham, who actually knew... Colin Powell. He's going to talk about his experience as a journalist covering Colin Powell and writing about him and traveling with him. We'll talk about that when we come back from the break. Stay with us. Back to 
Today with Dr. K and Dr. KY's Whitehead, we're continuing with our look at the life and legacy of former Secretary of State, four-star General Colin Powell. Uh, we know that there seems to be some misunderstanding about, about who he was, uh, about what he did, how much he accomplished, and, and rightfully so. I mean, life is complicated. And so in digging into his life, we invited our founding dean of our the School of Global Journalism and Communication, Dean Dwayne Wickham, who was a reporter who actually covered Colin Powell, traveled with him, got to know him, to give a real insight into who he was. Dean Wickham, thank you so much for coming on, sir. Always good to be a guest on your show, Dr. King. Always good to have you back. So I'm just going to have you first just kind of frame for us how you got to know him. I saw the story that you put out online today about, you know, with Tim Reed being involved. And so can you talk a little bit about your relationship with Colin Powell? Well, you know, I passed first cross back in 1987 when I was first elected president of the National Association of Black Journalists. And we were planning our next convention, which was, was to be held the following year in St. Louis. I invited him to be our keynote speaker. Uh, he turned down that offer but said, hey, my schedule is booked. Don't bother with uh, asking me again. Just send me another note. Tell me when. I'll be there. And so I invited him the next time, 1989, to come to New York for our national convention. And he chewed his word, showed up, and he was our keynote speaker. And from that day on, we uh, developed a relationship. Uh, it, interestingly, you know, he, we sat there on the dais uh, as we were looking out of the crowd and just said, you know, the small talk that always takes place there. And he told me about his daughter, his daughter Linda, who was uh, quite young then uh, and just trying to start an acting career, uh, looking for her first gig. Uh, and Tim Reed, uh, a good friend of mine, was starting a new show for CBS called Snoops. It was a one-hour program that dealt with a uh, kind of dramedy in which uh, he played a college professor and his wife was a State Department official, but they were actually spies. Uh, and so I was able to arrange for Linda to get uh, an audience with them, and they gave us a spot on the first show. Uh, as a result of that, we, we kind of, Colin Powell and I kind of meshed from that point forward. Ask you uh, about a few things that were said about him, and then have you fill in and add more to the story. I was reading the statement that President Barack and Michelle Obama released, and I want to pull out one small part. President Obama said that when there were conspiracy theorists floating around about who he was, General Powell stepped up and said, "The correct answer is he is not a Muslim; he's a Christian." But the real right answer is, what if he is? Is there something wrong with being a Muslim in this country? The answer is no, that's not America. Is there something wrong with some seven-year-old Muslim-American kid believing that he or she could be president? President Obama said that speaks to the heart and the character of Colin Powell, getting to the heart of what the issue is. Well, you're breaking up a little bit there as as I listen to you. Uh, I think it's important Dr. K, that we define this discussion. Uh, we look at Colin Powell not through the eyes of uh, mainstream media, not through the eyes of even mainstream politicians, but we look at him through our own eyes and ask the question, who was he and how can we best define him? I think there are three things that I would ask people to look at, particularly people of color, to help define who Colin Powell was. Three speeches he gave. Uh, I just referenced one, the 1989 speech he gave to black journalists at the National Association of Black Journalists Convention in New York City. Uh, That was in 1989. In 1994, he gave a commencement address at Howard University. Mm. And then two years later, he gave a commencement address at Bowie. Nobody talks about these speeches. Let me tell you the consistent theme he raised in both of them. One... This man, who rose to the highest levels of government, National Security Advisor to the President of the United States, Secretary of State, and also Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the top military officer in our nation, this man talked about, in all three of these speeches, years apart, the importance of him telling other people how he saw himself as a beneficiary Mm of the struggles uh, and the lives lost 
by so many people of color, particularly blacks, for 300 years in this country, who served without distinction, who served without credit, who gave their lives for a cause that, was, that, that they never came to realize they or their beneficiaries. And, and so he talked about that. He said, I stand on the shoulders of the blacks who came before me, who made so many sacrifices. And then he also talked in each of these speeches about the importance of affirmative action. Now, that may not sound like a big deal Mm -hmm. until you consider that here he stood there as a black Republican, uh, first serving in the administration of Ronald Reagan, who uh, launched his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, talking about states' rights. He stood there as a black man who served the presidency of George Herbert Walker Bush, who gave us Clarence Thomas, uh, and he stood there as a, as, a, as, a, as a man who served in the administration of George W. Bush. Uh, and, and I just remind people, uh, these are three Republican presidents with whom many black folks have a bone to pick. And Colin Powell stood there uh, uh, unbowed before all of them saying, affirmative action is significant, it's important, and we need to support it. Mm-hmm. And he stood there as a black man. I, I call him a race man, in fact, in the tradition of W.B. Du Bois. Uh, uh, and he said that it is so important for me to acknowledge the contributions that other black folks have made that have got me to this point. So I think that those are the kinds of things that we need to, to look at him and talk about. Uh, he was unwavering in his blackness. He, he, he was unapologetically black. I'm so glad you said that, Dean Wickham, because there there is quite a bit of confusion about that. If you you'll take a look at the comments that people are making, they they they're unfamiliar with how tall he actually stood, as well as the marks that came against him to be able to serve in those different administrations, to rise as high as he did in the military during the time in which he did this. He was paving a path that many have followed behind him. Uh, you're absolutely right, and I think uh, this is why I'm saying we have to define him. We can't let others define him. You see, it, other people want to talk about uh, Iraq right. and the war Iran, in Iran uh, and uh, the fact that he talked about weapons of mass destruction uh, and then had to apologize uh, because he uh, misled the nation and misled the world. He actually was misled himself on that issue. He was given bad information some would say intentionally so, by the CIA and others in the intelligence community because they wanted to play on his good name, his good reputation, to make him the face of the need of the push for war in Iran, Iraq, I should say. Uh, And so uh, I don't look at that. Uh, You know, he he made a mistake, and he came back and told us he made a mistake. Uh, But I think... We need to try to figure out what was the real character of this guy. How do we measure his character? Uh, and, I, and, and I look at his stance in support of affirmative action. Uh, in, in the service, while he stood in service to three Republican presidents, uh, all of whom had some opposition, uh, much opposition in the case of Ronald Reagan, uh, and certainly uh, uh, more so in the case of George Herbert Walker Bush than George W. Bush, but still there. Uh, he stood there in the, and, and served in the administration knowing that he was at loggerheads with them on that question, but he publicly declared to the world, but also, most importantly, to the black community where he stood on that issue. Let me ask you, uh, Dean Wickham, as someone who was covering the news during these times, these periods in history, from where you sit, why do you think uh, that Colin Powell, even though he was leading in the polls, even up up until that moment when he said he wasn't going to run, he was leading in the polls, there are all kind of speculations about why he didn't run for president. Everyone says, well, his wife said no. Do you know any more about why someone who had his popularity, who had the kind of traction that he had, who had the trust of the American public, chose not to step into that moment? You know, uh Think about all the years he spent uh, in and around the White House in service to presidents, Democrat and Republicans. 
Sometimes when you see sausage being made, you don't want to eat sausage. Right. <laughs> With that in he mind. Witnessed sausage, he, he witnessed sausage being made up close. Uh, he knew uh, uh, being president is a tough, tough job. Uh, there are no days off. Uh, it's a 24-7 kind of job. Everybody expects you to be president at the moment they need you, the moment they call you. Uh, and, uh, and you add on top of that the real fear that his wife had and that he had to some lesser extent uh, that uh, he might be assassinated if he were to successfully compete for that position. During the time that we're talking about, um, and I know you also traveled with and wrote about uh, President Barack Obama, and so you know, we've talked about that on the show as well. So you, you have an insider's view. Let me ask you, at that time where he had this kind of popularity and traction, was this country really ready to move in the direction of electing an African-American man to be president? Now, we know America's never ready, but they were more ready with President Barack Obama um, than they've ever been because he won. But, but could he have actually won it? So um, there certainly was, it seems to me, uh, a mindset within the Republican Party uh, at the time that Colin Powell, uh, uh, at the end of the um, <clears throat> first Bush administration, um, there was a mindset within the Republican Party that, that might have allowed for him to win the nomination. Uh, but whatever existed then certainly disappeared after uh, Barack Obama became president. Uh, what has happened, there's been a shifting that has taken place uh, within the Republican Party such that uh, what is left there is the Republican Party of Jesse Helms uh, and the, the Republican Party uh, of Donald Trump. That Republican Party would never have elected him uh, as their nominee. Uh, he may have gotten by uh, at the end of George Herbert Walker Bush's presidency, but those days are gone, and that Republican Party doesn't exist anymore. And I don't think we're ever going to get that Republican Party back. I mean, the Republican Party now seems to be so far to the right, even though Colin Powell talked about taking it back to the party of Lincoln. That was not successful. I'm not sure if it's ever going to get back to that. Well, the party of Lincoln is the party that came into existence at a time when the, uh, in the Whigs, the dominant party then, the Democrats and the Whigs, uh, and the Whigs produced something called the Know Nothing Party that lasted for uh, one or two cycles. And out of that came the, the new Republican Party in, in 1860. Uh, so I, I think we're on the verge of another transition in which something else will emerge from the, from the ashes of the current Republican Party. But that's going to take a moment, uh, and we'll see how that transpires. Uh, and maybe... Uh, in a new Republican Party uh, or a newly formed party that grows out of the ashes of the, of the current Republican Party, there may be an opening for a Colin Powell type uh, within black Republicans uh, to, to, uh, to win the nomination. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But is there a growing base of black Republicans? I, I feel that there, there are fewer black Republicans now, particularly because the party has moved so far to the right than maybe during the time uh, when Colin Powell, and I'm thinking about Lieutenant Governor Boyd Rutherford. Like, I don't seem to see that many black Republicans, on the surface at least, or speaking out publicly about it. Yeah, so there, there is still, I think, a, a rear guard of black Republicans that that's still around following the, the, the civil rights movement of the 1950s. Uh, uh, and, and so there's still some folks around, like Governor, uh, uh, Lieutenant Governor, uh, the Lieutenant Governor of Maryland, and a couple other folks. But for the most part, uh, the black Republicans uh, don't exist in the way we knew them before. The black Republicans of the, of the 1950s and the 1960s uh, were people who believed in civil rights. They were advocates of civil rights. Mm -hmm. uh, they believed in republicanism in a traditional sense. They, uh, they believed in uh, um, non-interventionism worldwide. They believed in uh, uh, an economy largely driven by uh, business. Uh, and uh, they, they weren't sharp on unions and that sort of thing. They, they, 
they were traditional Republicans. Uh, the current black Republicans, like so many of the current white Republicans, are social politicians. They have a social agenda, uh, and they're pushing uh, that social agenda uh, at the uh, uh, at the risk of denying themselves uh, all or everything else that Republicanism once stood for. But as we're starting to take a look at 2024, and I'm just using, you know, Colin Powell as a lens to talk about these other issues and hear your perspective on them. As we're thinking about 2024 and we're starting to take a look at the field, there's this is a given or people are believing it's a given that Donald Trump will run again. So from where you sit with your long eye of history, what does that portend for African-Americans, for the Hispanic Latinx community, from those who are opposed to the America that Donald Trump is trying to have created under his administration, what does that pretend for us to do in terms of getting ready to go forward and, and to push back? Well, Donald Trump is the... Um, I hate to say this. Donald Trump represents the American apartheid. Uh, if Donald Trump uh, successfully competes for the presidency in 2024, he will speed up the day when the United States will stumble into a South Africa-type existence in which a minority of whites will dominate a nation made up of a majority of people of color. The demographers tell us that by 2050, uh, America will be made up of a majority of people of color, blacks and Latinx uh, and Asians, uh, and whites will be the minority. Uh, but if they can do what Donald Trump and his, uh, his minion would have them do, and that is to seize control, control of the reins of government uh, and to transform our democracy uh, into something uh, that uh, is controlled uh, by the fiat of a small, entrenched minority. They will change the rules of engagement. They will change how we vote. They will change how we certify elections. Uh, and they will make it impossible, even when we have sufficient members, to win elections uh, and to control the political life of this country. That's where we're headed. Uh, if Donald Trump can be uh, elected in 2024. And that's what is happening in so many states, uh, in uh, Arizona and Wisconsin uh, and other states. Uh, Pennsylvania is trying it. Uh, these states are trying to transform the electoral process so that uh, it's not enough to win a majority of the votes. Uh, you're going to have to win the acceptance of the political forces that control the state legislature. Uh, in order to uh, to actually uh, uh, win an election, that's dangerous territory that we're moving upon, uh, and and I dread the, the the coming of that day. Well, that's very disturbing to hear, um, because it feels like we are on that path, and I'm wondering who can push back against it, at least in terms of who will be up against Donald Trump. Does President Joe Biden? I know we're still early on. But I, I've yeah. been making the argument for the last couple of days that we need to start getting focused on that because we are not, we don't have as much time as we think we have as we're starting to think so listen, about 2024 and even the local elections that are coming up, midterms. Yeah, the, lo the local elections are very important. Republicans got to this position. While we were sitting in the White House uh, eight years under Bill Clinton and eight years under Barack Obama uh, with uh, George Bush in between, we, we ran the White House for... Uh, 16 of 24 years. And during that time, the Republicans went to work taking control of state legislatures because they understood if you control the state legislatures, you control the bodies that would define uh, what the electoral process would be. They would define what the, what the districts would look like because every 10 years they would redraw the lines uh, and they would uh, have the power to change the rules by which we even... Uh, conduct elections, and certify the, the winners. And that's what they're doing now. And so uh, we need to focus not on 2024 right now. We need to focus on 2022, on taking back state legislatures uh, and um, ensuring that in 
Michigan and Wisconsin and uh, Minnesota, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Arizona, uh, states that are teetering on the brink, Georgia, that in fact uh, one man, one vote is, a, is, a, is the rule uh, and that people uh, can go to cast their ballots uh, without interference uh, and without being denied opportunity. Uh, so that's, that's what we have to work on. Uh, and that's important. It doesn't sound, you know, it sounds like uh, really, you know, like it sounds like make work, but it's important work. And it's the work that it's hard to get people excited about, right, Dean Wickham? I know that's that right. people that's get right. excited. They line up for Barack Obama. And we lined up during a pandemic to vote for President Joe Biden. People don't line up with the same type of enthusiasm particularly people who are part of the Democratic Party for these midterm elections. I mean, there is a sense in the Republican Party that every election is life or death. If you want, yeah. if you don't want this country to be taken away from you, you've got to vote in every election. It's a little bit of laser fare in the Democratic Party. And so people we have to figure out, much. We, we have to figure out how to sound the, the alarm. You see, with, with the Republicans, uh, they do cry, uh, they do shout, shout fire in a crowded theater every election. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and, and we've got to figure out how we come up with the Democratic Party equivalent of that. Uh, well, you, you, folks need to know that we don't have much time here. Uh, I say again, the American apartheid is fast approaching. Uh, and if we don't get our act together... Uh, black folks who think it's not me, uh, you know, I got a middle-class job at a BMW outside of my house in a nice little comfortable home in the suburbs, so they're not talking about taking over me. They don't understand. Uh, look at the South Africa model, uh, and they will be creating Bantu stands for black folk here in the United States if we leave them to their own devices. Dean Wickham is the answer for black folks to think about getting our own country. Now, I tend to push back against this. Let's be very clear. I'm not sure what people are talking about. They're like, you know, it's time for us to get our own, to move somewhere different, to come together. Are those even any options that we can actually seriously begin to consider? Uh, unless, it's, unless it's a vacant island somewhere. I don't know what we're talking about. Yeah. We're not sure. Are we talking about the Liberia model? Come on. If we're talking about the Liberia model, I need to remind people how... Uh, some of those uh, uh, American blacks who ended up uh, yes. in Liberia ended up uh, on a beach tied to a pole being shot. Uh, so we can't go and take someone else's country from them. And the truth of the matter is this is our country. Uh, your, your relatives and my relatives have probably been here generations longer than Donald Trump and his ilk uh, and, and, and served uh, this country in ways that the Trump family did not. Donald Trump's uh, grandfather uh, came here ducking the draft in Germany. Uh, he was a draft dodger in Germany. And he came here, and Donald Trump's father and Donald Trump uh, and his sons have never served a day in the, in the American military, uh, but they would have us think they're the greatest patriots uh, that this country has to offer. Uh, and so uh, this is our country. Uh, the legacy of the struggle of black folks for freedom is a legacy that produced freedom for women, that produced freedom for Asian Americans. Remember the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act? Yes. Uh, I mean, our fight for freedom was not just a fight that freed black folks. It, it opened up the door for, for freedom uh, for a broad array of people who were actually being uh, held underfoot uh, by those who controlled this country. So uh, there's a lot for us to do, a lot for us to accomplish. We have to do it here. The third party, a third party movement is the fool's gold of American politics. Uh, we, we will not, uh, with 10% of the vote, create uh, anything other than a vacuum in the political process if we create a third party. Dean Wickham, I cannot agree with you more. I have often said that I think we should stop dreaming about a Wakanda being created somewhere for us and instead work on the country that belongs to us. What Frederick Douglass said, the one where our blood is mixed with the soil, that we do the hard work here. 
this third party, and we, we, we've been having this conversation for the last couple of days about the, the idea of a third party, that we take the gamble on a third party, and we may lose along the way, but eventually we're going to get someone we, we want. I don't yeah. think right now that we have votes to lose, to just lose elections, put people like Donald Trump in office with the idea that the third party will gain momentum and strength. I don't think we have that kind of time. On our side. No, you know, you know Frederick, Frederick Douglass was nominated for vice president on a third-party ticket in the 1870s, turned it down. Yes. Uh, more, more recently, in my early years of my journalism career, back in the 1970s, there was a third-party movement among blacks in this country. A lot of pe- people who advocate blacks forming a third party today have no idea about this. The National Black Political Assembly was a fusion of radicals left and right within the black community uh, and the mainstream. Everybody was there. Baraka was there. Uh, uh, Roy Wilkins was there. I mean, they, they came from the mainstream. They came from the right of the, uh, of, the, of the black activist community. They came from the left of the black activist community, and they tried to form a third political party. It didn't work. So we want to talk about. So, Dean Wickham, I will be coming back to you. We just want to. I keep going with my dream of just, you know, five minutes with the Dean. But I enjoy having you on. Thank you for your wisdom, sir. Good to be with you. Absolutely. So, folks, leave it here. When we come back, we're going to open up the phone lines to you. President Joe Biden is coming to Baltimore tomorrow, not to have crab cakes, which I would recommend. No, he's coming to have a town hall. He's looking for questions. What should we put on the table for President Joe Biden to wrestle with tomorrow? We'll talk about that when we come back from the break. 